a brand new church. If I were starting a brand new church, I don't think I would have picked Central Baptist Church. One of the reasons is that it seems like there's a few thousand of them everywhere you look. And also, I said the theme from the Bible didn't seem to jump straight to my mind why there were so many Central Baptist churches. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I looked and I looked and it said there was a convention of American Baptist churches that was called the Central Baptist American Association or something, and they said that they wanted their ministries to be centered directly from the Bible, not veering to the left or to the right. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. That's that's a good theme. But to me, the word renewal jumps to our mind a lot quicker to know what the theme is of the ministry, to know what we are asking God to allow us to do. So I, I like the theme, and also I believe it's unique. There is not another Renewal Baptist Church that I could find anywhere in the country. There may be one, but I couldn't find it. I also think that the theme is very biblical. We talked about that when we started to go through reasons for the name change and looked at all of the verses in the Bible that talk about our strength being renewed, our mind being renewed. We'll look at some of those this morning, but Isaiah 40:31 being the key verse that if we wait upon the Lord, we will renew our strength. That verse is featured on the center page of our website, and it's sort of a theme verse, hopefully for our ministry going forward. I also believe that it's timely. We've just gone through a year with COVID and the political season and the division in our country where a lot of people are having issues. And in my mind, in my heart, I hope that there's a lot of people who will be open to hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an advantage in sharing the gospel because not only does the Lord go before us and the Lord prepares the hearts and the Lord witnesses and pulls people to himself, but also God, I believe the Bible teaches, has created each and every human being in this world with a built-in desire to know what the truth is, to seek why are we here? What are we doing? What is the meaning of life? And it's only in the Creator who made us, who created us with the desire to know Him, that those things can be fulfilled. I believe for the state of our nation, for the state of the church in America, for the state of our church, and I pray also for my heart and your heart, that we would be renewed, that we would see the times of refreshing come from the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, and what I'm going to do, if you'll stick with me, is I want to, as quickly as I can, read through this chapter. I'll give you a few comments, but basically we'll go right through this chapter and kind of do a speed expository sermon, and then I'll move to some points that I have, if the Lord would allow me to get to it, that's a little bit more topical, to look around the rest of the scriptures that has to do with this theme of being renewed. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The purpose of what the prophet was supposed to say in this chapter was so that God's people could be comforted. And the reason for that is that they had gone through a time of judgment from the Lord. And God said, I want you to speak to them that they would receive comfort In my word, verse three, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain 
And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. We'll talk about those verses a little bit more in a moment, but it's a direct prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist and how he would prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into the world to preach and then to die for our sins. He moves straight in his message of comfort to the prophecy of one that would prepare the way of the Lord and the Lord's presence to come. Verse 6, the voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The prophet is told to cry out and he says, but what shall I cry? What is the message that people need to know? It's discouraging to think about the reality of life, that life is short and the people are as the grass which grows up for a little bit and then it's cut down. Where is our hope? Where is the comfort we are told to speak of? Verse 8 says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Yes, our hope will not be found if we look to people, but if we look to the eternal word of God and the truths that are contained within the book that we hold in our hands this morning, we know that we have hope because the people will pass away, but the word of God does not. Jesus paraphrased this verse somewhat when he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What we see is temporary, but what is spiritual and what comes from the word of God is eternal. It is forever. Verse 9. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Verses 3 through 5 speak of Jesus Christ coming when John the Baptist prepared a way for him. These verses here fit with many of the other verses in the Old Testament that speak of when Jesus will come as king and ruler upon this earth. The book of Revelation says for 1,000 years he shall sit and reign and rule upon the throne. And the Old Testament and the Psalms and Isaiah and the other prophets speak to Jerusalem and Jesus' feet touching the Mount of Olives and him setting up his kingdom. When they're told, what are the good, glad tidings they're supposed to say? It's that the Lord will come. At this point, he was still to come to be their savior. Where we are now, we can look back and rejoice. He's already come to die for our sins, but we still look to the future and know that one day he will come as conquering king. That's a good message for those of us who know the Lord. But it's a frightening message for those who do not know him. Verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? This says, who has been able to do what our God has been able to do? It's as if he can measure all the water on the entire planet and hold it in his hand. He can look to heaven in the measure of his hands and see how, how wide it is. And he comprehends the dust of the earth in a measure. He knows how much it is. It's as if it were nothing to him. 
He's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in his balance. And verse 13 says, who's able to direct the spirit of our God? Who's able to go to him and say, God, this is what you should be able to do? No, after seeing the evidence of his creation and what he's made, we know there's no one who has the wisdom or power that our God has. Verse 14. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are counted are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity." When it talks about who has instructed the Lord or who can know His way, it reminds me of Job. When Job had gone through all of his trials and he was complaining and saying, God, why did you allow me to lose my family and my health and all of my wealth? And God showed up and for two chapters didn't give Job one single answer to his specific questions. But he said, Job, I've got some questions for you. Where were you when I spoke the world into existence? Where were you when I took the planet and hung it upon nothing and and placed it directly between the sun and the moon, where if it was a little bit closer to the sun, it would have burned up, and if it was a little bit farther away, it would have frozen? Where were you when I created all the animals? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, God was trying to get the message through to Job to say, do you really think you're able to tell me what I should do? Are you questioning what my will is? And when it came to the end of God speaking to Job for two chapters... Job said, before I'd heard of the Lord, but now I see him face to face. Wherefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. He humbled himself and showed humility when he saw the true power, glory and honor and awe that our God possesses. And what he simply decided was, I'm going to now be quiet and listen and trust that God knows best. And He still knows best. Whatever we're going through, whatever questions we have, why is God allowing persecution? Why does He allow this trial? Why did He allow this death? Whatever it is, we have to simply look and say, if God created everything in His might and His power and His majesty and His wisdom, He knows more than I know. And I need to simply have faith. It says here, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. In other words, all the nations of the earth and all of their military might and all of their money and all of their strength... It doesn't impress God. It doesn't threaten God. God's in control. It doesn't matter who's ruling politically. It doesn't matter who the king or the president or the prime minister is. God is still in control. And God doesn't watch the news and get all bothered by it and get worried and wonder what's going to happen because He's in control. He's providential. He's powerful. He gives us room sometimes to go our own way, to choose our own leaders, to go into sin. But also he's providential enough to sometimes say, I will not allow that. God's in control. God's mighty. God's powerful. Verse 18, to whom then will ye liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Here the text speaks to the absurdity of thinking that we can make an idol with our own hands, and bow down and worship that idol and think that it can replace God. Someone makes a graven image and makes it with gold and silver chains. And verse 20 speaks of someone that's so poor that they don't have an oblation, which is a burnt offering. So they go and they cut down a tree and they try to prepare it and make it sturdy enough. But God says those things are not alive. 
There's no power in an idol or a statue or a relic. I'm the living God that created everything, and I'm the one that is to be worshipped. Verse 21, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. You'll see a theme in this chapter. The comfort to the people of God comes not from something specific of God saying, I'm going to take away all your heartache or all your trial, or I'm going to make you rich and prosperous. But rather, comfort came from God, from His might, from His power, and from His promises, from who He is and what He can do and what He has promised He will do. It says here that God sits upon the circle of the earth. In the days of Columbus, when they discovered this continent, a lot of people said, we don't want to take that journey. The earth is flat, and if we head too far that direction, we'll sail right off the end of it. The Bible's always been far ahead of science. And either science is wrong, or just give it enough time, and it'll catch up with the Bible eventually. The New Testament uses the phrase science falsely, so-called. I don't believe that... There was a bunch of nothing and a bunch of dirt that miraculously appeared. And then one day there was a miraculous explosion that came out of nowhere and no one caused it. And it was happenstance. And then that gave us this beautiful orderly world that we have today. I think it's a scientific impossibility that everything came from nothing and that nothing created everything. I believe the Bible. I believe the Word of God. I believe He spoke it into existence and it belongs to Him. And in His sovereignty, this is my Father's world, and the devil has a leash to run around and create some problems, but it belongs to Him. Verse 23, "...that bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he also shall blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble." To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? There's no one like Him. There's no one equal to Him, not even close. What a mighty, precious, awesome God that we are given the privilege of serving. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of His might. For that He is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Don't say my way is hidden from the Lord. Don't say, well, judgment has escaped me. God is watching. God knows who we are. He knows what we're doing, and nothing slides by God. In His providence, He'll take care of it in His own way, in His own time. Verse 28, we're almost done with this portion. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of His understanding. The reason we can plant our feet this morning and say, no matter what is happening, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul, is because of this God, everlasting God, Lord, sovereign creator of the ends of the earth. He's not fainting. He's not even getting tired. And He's the one that we serve. With all those promises about who God is kept in mind, He then turns to what God will do for us. Verse 29, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Yes, we might get tired, we might faint, and even young people in their strength might think they're okay, but don't don't eat enough, don't drink enough, go long enough without sleep. You'll get tired, you'll faint, your life will go from you. But the God who never faints, the God who never gets tired, the God who never loses His power, if we wait upon Him and seek His will and dive into His promises and who He is, He promised He will renew our strength. He will take us from the hopeless state we are and allow us to be strong, to mount up with wings as eagles, to run forward into the future in His will and not get tired and to walk and not to faint. There's my speed expository sermon and with the rest of the time we have this morning, five points. It's not three points, which is traditional. I didn't even alliterate it because I didn't have that much time. But five points from the Word of God fitting this theme of renewal. Number one, the unsaved need to be renewed. As I said, verse number three is directly spoken of the ministry of John the Baptist who was there to announce the Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry. Matthew chapter 3 For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. There in the New Testament, in Matthew, it references Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It says in Luke chapter 1 in the story of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, who he had lost his ability to speak and he waited and then the Lord gave it back to him. And it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy about the birth of his child. And he said, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. God gave insight to his father that it would be John the Baptist who would fulfill this verse in Isaiah chapter 40. Luke chapter number 3 says he came into the country of Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness and it goes on to quote the next couple verses as well about every valley being filled the mountain being brought low and the crooked being made straight which speaks most believe to the ministry of Jesus Christ and how those who were lowly and down and out and in dark, sat in darkness would see great light and would be elevated to the knowledge of salvation and those who were high and lofty in their own minds would be humbled and brought down and be brought face to face with their sins. That which was crooked, Jesus would have the ability to make straight and that which was rough, Jesus would have the ability to make smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In John chapter number 1, 19 through 23, they came and they said to John the Baptist, the priest and the Levites, they demanded of him and they said, Who art thou? He confessed and denied not. He said, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. And they said unto him, Who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? Who are you, John? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So you see this verse speaks of the ministry of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way of Jesus Christ for his ministry of dying for our sins and bringing salvation to the Lord, from the Lord to the world. They came often and said, are you Elijah? The reason they kept asking that was in the book of Malachi, I believe the last chapter, chapter 4, it said that God will send Isaiah before the coming of the day of the Lord to prepare his way. 
And they said, well, are you Elijah? Reincarnate? My personal belief is that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 and he will come and will prepare the way for the Lord and for his kingdom. And when they asked him here, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm the one Isaiah prophesied of. Make straight the way of the Lord. But what Jesus said when they asked him if John the Baptist was Elijah, he said he will be Elijah for you if you can receive it. In other words, he's here to prepare the way. But as a nation and as a world, they were not prepared to accept Jesus as king, rather to persecute him and to put him to death. And so Jesus was saying, well, if you would receive his ministry, he would fulfill the role of Isaiah. But my personal belief is John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' ministry of dying for our sins. And Elijah will one day come as the scripture prophesied and prepare the way for him to come as king. At any rate, all that to say the text points to the ministry of John the Baptist, which was leading in to Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, I do not believe that the the Bible does teaches that mankind was not as we are now. They were not getting old. They were not getting sick. There was not death and pain like we see in the earth. But the world has a sin problem. And because of the sin problem, we have a death problem. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And the New Testament says by one man, sin entered into the world and death passed upon all people. Therefore, Jesus Christ had to die. They ate of the tree of life, which the text says gave them the ability to live forever. They weren't supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when they disobeyed God and ate that, they were cast out of the garden. And the Bible says that God put an angel with a flaming sword in the garden to do what? To keep the way of the tree of life. They weren't allowed to eat of that anymore. Therefore, creating the need for Jesus to come to die for our sins. And if we'll believe in him, receive him in repentance and faith, look to him. He can save our souls. And in Revelation, it says that of the people who are in heaven with God, guess what will be in heaven? The tree of life that Adam and Eve used to eat from will be put there because through Jesus and through salvation, we can be restored to the state of the first Adam. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Yes, those who don't know Christ as Savior need to be renewed. They need the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. They need salvation. Let me say from this morning, from the depths of my heart, I'm praying and asking that God would allow this to be a gospel-based ministry. That the heartbeat of our church would be, yes, we need to be fed from the Word of God. Yes, we need fellowship. Yes, we need prayer. But there's others who do not know Jesus Christ, who've never heard, and they need to be told that Jesus died for your sins. I pray that it can be the heartbeat of our church Yes, sometimes it's discouraging. And yes, a lot of people don't want to hear and they don't want to believe in Jesus Christ. But we're still given the Great Commission when Jesus said, give the gospel to every creature. That's people who are rich. That's people who are poor. That's people who will receive it. That's people who will reject it. That's people who don't want it. We're supposed to share with each and every one of them. And people need Jesus Christ. What's wrong with our world? I said it's we have a sin problem. Why do we see mass shootings? Why do we see division? Why do we see rioting and looting and crime? It's not because someone needs to come along and pass a government program that's going to fix it all or a social program or welfare that will fix all of our societal needs. It's because there's sin in the heart of each and every human being that enters 
into this world. And people need Jesus Christ. We pass people by each and every day at work, on the way to work, at the grocery store. The Metroplex we read the first week I was preaching as pastor, the statistics of how many people are in this area and how many people are going to move in over the next decade. I don't know how they're all going to fit on the roads. The DFW area is the number one market for the past 12 months for new home builds. People are coming here. They're leaving states that were so restrictive during COVID that they lost their business. And they're saying, well, I'll go to Florida. I'll go to Texas. And one of the places they're coming is here. Not just here, but here, here, to this state, to where we live. And never forget that as we go past people and we see them on the sidewalk and we see the cars on the road and we see the apartment complexes and the houses and people stacked up one on top of another, that every single person you see has a soul that's going to live forever one day either in God's presence or away from God in the second death. People need Jesus Christ. He gave us the Great Commission. And as I said, all I want to do is cast a net. I'm not saying there's one good way to do it. We went out and put some fires on some people's door for Easter. And you know what? No one came. But I don't think it was a waste of time. Let's go back and put another one there. We were trying to invite people. We put the study that said the only group in 2020 that saw their mental health get better instead of stay the same or worse was those who attended church weekly. And there's benefits to that. We're going to go, Andrew and I are going to go very soon, maybe this week before our next group activity, and we're going to try to knock on some doors, put out some door hangers. Lord willing, by the end of the year, we can buy some Facebook ads that give the gospel and also ones for people who are looking for a church that might be like this. By the end of the year, hopefully we'll get a mailing and we'll send it out to some people who are around us. What am I saying? I'm saying I don't have a good strategy. I don't know of a great way to to just go out and market and get great success. But there's a God in heaven who said, give the gospel, who said, reach out. So let's cast out. Let's give Let's give to missions. Let's pass out gospel tracts. Let's try to have conversations. Let's leave something on people's doors. Let's send out a mailer. Let's do a Facebook post and whatever else and ways the Lord will give us. Say, God, just help us to cast a net and to give the gospel. And in so doing, I believe he will bless it. But if we don't see anything visual from it, we're still obeying Him. We're still obeying what the Word of God says. D.L. Moody, uh, the man who wrote it as well with my soul, I said he was headed to England to take part in one of his evangelistic campaigns. And D.L. Moody had a ministry where he went out into the streets of it was London, right? I think London, England. And he picked up poor kids and brought them to what he began as the Sunday school movement. And he said, come to church and be taught. And he gave them the gospel. And he took a horse-drawn carriage back in those days and tried to reach out to poor kids and get them into church and give them the gospel. And one day a man was talking to D.L. Moody and he said, you know what, there's a lot about your methods that I don't like. He said, it's offensive to some people. And then the church has to deal with these poor kids coming in. And there's just, I think there's a lot of way things about the way you're doing it that's wrong. And D.L. Moody thought for a second and he said, well, you know what? I agree with you. He said, there's a lot about my methods that I don't particularly like myself. Maybe I'll be able to, to do better at it someday. And then he said, but you know what? And he said, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. In other words, there's a lot of people who might be a naysayer and say, what good does it do and why even try? But God has commanded us to give the gospel. He's commanded us to reach out before the, beyond the four walls of the church. And I'm not saying I'm very good at it, but let's try to say, God, help me share my faith. God, help me pass out a gospel track. God, help me pray for people. And let's reach out and trust God with whatever the results are. But remember, the mission of the church is to give the gospel. 
Number one, the unsaved need to be renewed through salvation. Number two, we need to have our faith renewed. I'm not going to reread it, but I had verse 25 through 28 highlighted here where it talks about under this point how no one's equal to God and His might and His power and don't be afraid of the people and don't think that your judgment will be hid from God. Don't be afraid of the nations. And as I read these verses, I think of the subject of faith. I think of how if we realize who God is and what God has promised that He will do, that we will have faith in Him, that we will trust Him and trust Him to keep His promises. And the, the first couple of weeks I was preaching, I said, what is faith? Faith is believing God and believing that God will do what He said He will do and choosing to obey Him and saying, Lord, as a church, this is what Your Word says we're supposed to do, so we're going to do it. Not for the results, not because we want people to think that we're doing a good job, but because Your Word says it. And as we obey God and obey His Word, may we believe and have faith that He will build His church. Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yes, it's disturbing to watch the news. Yes, it's troubling to see just north of the border they're shutting down churches and fencing them off and throwing pastors in prison and knowing that one day that might come here. Yes, it's been a disturbing year if you've watched the news at all. It's troubling to see our country divided. It's troubling to see hatred. It's troubling to see people hating one another and liberties being threatened, and and even the the COVID itself, and the health problems, and the people that it, that died because of it. It's been troubling. But I ask us this morning: What is our faith in? What is our hope built upon? It's not about the circumstances that are around us, but rather in the God that Isaiah talks about, and how powerful that He is. And I'm here to tell you: There's a lot of people who've had it far worse than us in history. And God still did His work. God still built His church. Jesus came to be born through a citizen of the nation of Israel who at the time of His birth, they were under Roman oppression. They were under invasion. They didn't have their liberties. But Jesus still came. And when He left, the church was under persecution. But rather than persecution stopping the growth of the church, instead it spread like a wildfire. And we're here this morning on the other side of the excuse me, the other side of the globe 2,000 years later because people said we're going to do what Jesus said and trust Him to build His church and it didn't matter that there were political leaders who were not kind to them. It didn't matter that they were getting thrown into prison and fed to lions. God was faithful to see them through. So I say to us as a church this morning as we look to the future, it's ready, set, go by faith. Let's cast our nets out into the deep and let's trust that God will do what He said He will do that He will keep us, that He will be faithful. I think about times and seasons where it was difficult to serve God, and I think about Noah. The whole world, the whole world was so wicked in the thoughts and the imaginations of their heart that God said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood, and I'm going to start over. But Noah, one man, and his family... It says that he, in the New Testament in Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness. He declared God. He declared His righteousness. He built the ark. And I believe he declared to people around him, you can get in the ark if you want to escape judgment. And I believe he was mocked and they rejected him. Hebrews 11 says this though about Noah, by faith. Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
by the which He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Yes, I'm here to tell you this morning it may be difficult and it's scary the influences that are that are in this world and, and having a daughter myself knowing that any device this small connects to the internet and all kinds of evil and predators and things that kids don't need to be introduced to and it's hard and it's scary but I'm not here to say I'm so afraid of this world that, that I want to retreat and hide or don't want to have children. I want to say I believe by faith that as God saw Noah through, it is possible to live for God in a world that's wicked. It is possible to have a marriage that's strong. It is possible to raise children up for the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for God in this day and age. No one from the outside got on the boat, but it says that Noah prepared the ark to the saving of his house. Him preaching righteousness might not have gotten everyone around him safe, but him and his family was able to be kept right and to escape the judgment because he was obeying God. And it says that Noah did it by faith. He trusted God. Why can we look to the future and not be afraid? Because of God. Because who He is, what He's promised. We can trust Him and we can obey Him. Perhaps having children and, and worrying about their future is one of the greatest things in life that needs to have a lot of faith. Sometimes as a parent, you just feel so helpless. And you pray for that precious little soul that the Lord would keep them safe and free from the danger and evil in this world, but also that He would save their soul someday. Melissa and I are blessed to have one daughter, Sarissa, in the nursery, over next door in the nursery this morning. She's 17 months old. And let me tell you, stubbornness for a 17 month old. The other week, my in-laws were over and she'd been learning new words and all day she'd been saying, happy, happy. And so I said, Sarissa, with uh, Melissa's parents, I said, can you say happy? I was sitting here on the fireplace brick and she was sitting here. I said, Sarissa, can you say happy? 17 months old. She goes, just like that. And I said, God, God help me. (laughs) This is my life now. What are the next 18 years going to be like? But you know what? As, As I look at her and how much my heart loves her and they say when you have children, it's like your heart jumps outside of your chest and starts walking around and you don't have control. I can't control what she's going to choose to do someday. I can't control what the Lord will allow her to go through. But we also sing that precious hymn, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. And the hymn writer said, How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy they give. And to know this child can face uncertain days because He lives. And the same God who created the universe, who can measure out the the waters of the ocean in His hand and stretch out the stars and call them by name and is not threatened by all the military might on this planet, He's the one who can providentially bless the future of that little child and of the rest of them. God's in control. I need to move quickly. I don't want to make this a series, which I seem to be doing with every sermon recently. Number three, we need to have our minds renewed. Verse 30 talks about people fainting and losing their strength. And it reminds me of Hebrews 12.3 who tells us, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. It says, remember Jesus. Remember what he did. Don't get so overcome by the darkness of this world that you not only faint physically, but you faint mentally. 
because it's too much for us if we don't keep our mind on Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To be conformed literally means to be pressed into the mold of. And here the text says, do not be pressed into the mold of this world. Don't just go along with what everyone else is saying and doing. And the world that is against Christ is pushing so hard in the direction away from God. It says, don't let that pull you in. Don't be pushed into that mold. But rather be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The devil surely wants to attack our mind. We see it in the news. We hear things at work. And when we're out and about, the devil surely wants to attack our mind and pull it away from God. And there's a million distractions that will pull to us and call to us. But we have to intentionally have our quiet time, intentionally look to the Bible, intentionally look to God and say, feed me again, renew my mind. It's not enough to read a promise of God once in the Bible. It's not enough to hear a sermon once. No, the, the Word of God says keep coming back and eat it as you would your daily bread and keep coming back to church. Keep hearing the preaching. Keep seeking God because we need to be renewed and refreshed and refilled over and over and over again. People deal with fear, depression, addiction, anxiety, all kinds of things. God said in Isaiah 26, 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Keep your mind stayed upon God. Trust him. And he says he will give you perfect peace. That's a pretty good promise. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? The next chapter, Isaiah 41, 10, he says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. He goes on to tell them, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, for I will help thee. Verse 13. We have that God of this universe who's promised He will help us. I need help. And I have the promise of God that He will so let's keep going back to the promises of God. Let's be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Number four, we need to have our strength renewed. Verse 29 through 31 talks about people losing their physical strength. And yeah, you may think that you're strong and you're an athlete, whatever else. But as I said, don't drink water on a Texas day when you're outside playing sports for a while and see how strong you feel. Fast, skip a meal, don't sleep one night, and we all begin to feel, yes, even the young men shall faint and be utterly weary and begin to lose their strength. And then it says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I believe God can renew our physical strength, but I believe also He can renew our spiritual strength. The Apostle Paul prayed to God three times and he said, remove this thorn in the flesh, this physical sickness and ailment that I have. And God told him after three times of praying it, no, I'm not going to remove it. You're going to have to bear that physical infirmity. And what did Paul say? He learned, when I am weak, then am I strong. So I will glory in the infirmities of my flesh if they draw me closer to my God. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. 
It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Yes, we want to be delivered from our troubles, but sometimes God will allow our physical strength to leave. He'll allow different trials to come so that spiritually we may learn the word of God and we may be stronger and be more like him. The word there is used. What is the key? They that wait upon the Lord. They say that the word in the Hebrew comes primarily from a meaning to bind together or collect. But it's used in a figurative sense often. And in the Bible here, it has the meaning to expect, to gather together, to look patiently, to tarry, to wait, to wait for, but also to wait on and to wait upon. 29 times in the Bible, it's translated wait. 13 times it's translated as look. So sometimes wait means we're seeking God and God, I'm ready. What's the next step? And he says, just wait, wait on God. It's hard. It takes patience. But if we do that, he'll renew our strength because it comes in his will in his time. But if we know from looking at the word itself and also the rest of the word of God, it's not his desire for us as Christians to wait around doing nothing. We're to wait upon God as you would wait upon a table and serve a person in a restaurant. We're supposed to serve God, be about doing His will, carrying forth His purpose. Wait for Him, yes, in His timing, but also wait upon Him. Do His will. Do what He's told you to do. And in due time, He says He will renew your strength. Jesus said, if you're labor and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest as we do what? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what we would call a paradise, a paradise, a paradox. Because a yoke is what helps you bear the burden and you would put the ox in the cart in the yoke so that it could pull and it would be hard. And a burden, my burden is light. A burden by definition is heavy. But Jesus says, if you want your burdens lifted, Serve me, and I will give you rest. Wait for me, yes, but wait upon me. Be busy doing what I've called you to do. And he says, he'll renew your strength, and you can mount up with wings as eagles. And my dad used to preach from that text and talk about how they say the eagle in its life goes through the molting period, I think they call it. And it gets almost depressed, and it sheds its feathers, but eventually it's restored. Eventually it feels better and it soars toward the sky. And maybe God will let us go through that period of a valley. But he says, know that I'm with you. Keep going forward. Keep serving me and I will renew your strength. I will allow you to mount up with wings as eagles. Working outside in the Texas heat, I'll get to where I'm exhausted and I stop. I didn't bring enough to drink, but I get cold water and then I get Gatorade. And what happens? We're replenished. We're refueled. And God says he will renew our strength. Elijah was depressed. He was upset. And he said, it's enough. Lord, go ahead. Let me die. It's enough. But don't look to God and say it is enough. Rather do as Christ did. Finish your course till you can say it is finished. I'm going to break a rule. I said when I started, my goal is to be done preaching by 12 o'clock at the latest every Sunday. I have one point, And I believe I can get this in quickly, but God is my witness in front of everyone. If I'm preaching at 1210, that'll be the end. But I think I can do it faster. If you please would bear with me this morning, I think God would have me to finish this sermon. We'll go back to being by noon next week, unless it's another long sermon. Number five, we need renewed revival. The word revival also has to do with the word revitalization. And when it talked about Jesus coming for salvation, it said that which is crooked, he can make it straight. That which is rough. He can make smooth and God in heaven can come and take that which has been worn down, that which needs to be renewed and he can give it life 
again. He can build it back up. The word renewal has to do with resuming an activity or renewing a state after an interruption. It has to do with repair of something that is worn out, run down, or broken. Psalm 85, 6, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? The word there about revive has to do with life, with living, restoring, and to be made whole. Surely every single one of us have in our heart times when we need to look to the Lord and say, God, revive my heart, restore it. I've been getting away from you. In Psalm 51, David prayed that God, after he had sinned, after David had sinned, he prayed, God, renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You see, when we sin, it doesn't cost us salvation, but it may cost us the joy of our salvation. And we need to look to God again. And surely as a church, we can look to God and say, God, please bring revival to Plano, Texas. Please renew us. Please allow us not simply to have a goal in mind of a certain number or of certain acclaim, but simply God's presence with us and going forward and seeing some more people come visit and join and be saved and be baptized and be blessed from the preaching of the Word of God. Unfortunately, very many people have been hurt in church and had a bad experience with church or church leadership. This section, I will say, I think every single one of you know who are members. I'm not talking about our church specifically or my dad. A lot of the things I want to talk about in closing, my dad and I have been talking about for years, about how a lot of churches unfortunately hurt people with the way that they do things. Someone said, have you had a bad experience with religious people or religious leaders? Well, so did Jesus. They were the ones who put him to death. There was a large church in the state of Indiana and they were having a competition and they had bus routes that picked people up and brought them to church and one man was giving a testimony and he said, I worked so hard and the people on our bus, we went out into the community and we labored and we invited people to church and we begged them to come and they were having a competition for who would have the most people come on their bus and they would win a prize and he said they were in the parking lot getting ready to head on into the church and he said another bus pulled up And the man on the other bus yelled out to the kids, well, if you'll get off of that bus and ride our bus today, you get free pizza. And so the kids all jumped off of the one bus and went to the other. And something like that may seem small, but something can crush someone in their heart and leave them distraught when they work hard for Jesus. And then someone else comes and does something like that that would be considered unethical, maybe not the biggest of deals, but isn't the right way to treat people. That same man who did that, who called the kids to the other bus, later became the pastor of the church and is in prison for having a relationship inappropriately with a 16-year-old teenage girl who'd had a rough past who he preyed upon and seduced. Yes, there's been a lot of people who have been hurt in church. I've seen examples and heard stories where the pastor will, from the pulpit, call out and say bad things about a lady who visits because he didn't think she was dressed as modestly or appropriately as he thought she should have been. Some of them, maybe not even saved, didn't even know the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they come into church and have an experience that may drive them away from church for the rest of their life. 
One pastor in Texas preached a message and he called it spiritual PTSD. And from his pulpit, he said, I have to preach this message as an apology because in years past, our church has hurt a lot of people and has disrespected a lot of families and hasn't been careful enough to explain the gospel to people. And it's given the church of Jesus Christ a bad name. And by the grace of God, we're going to try to change. One pastor in Texas had a rule that whatever you did, you had to get the pastor's permission. If you wanted to buy a new car, you had to go to the pastor. And one time he came in and said, it's God's perfect will for each and every one of you to homeschool your kids. And that's what you have to do. And then he changed his mind and said, well, now God's perfect will is for you to put your kids in our Christian school because we decided to have one. I went to one preaching conference as a young person in Texas where there was two preachers, and God is my witness. It seemed as if over and over and over again they mentioned two things in their preaching. One was using the King James Version of the Bible, and one was that women should only wear dresses. Now, I just remember in my heart thinking, I believe they're standing up for what they think is right. And we preach from the King James here, but there was no explaining of the issue. It seemed obvious that it wasn't designed for someone who came in to hear, this is why we do it. This is our heart. This is why we want to do it. But it seemed to me as if it was everyone kind of sitting around giving each other high fives who already believed the same things. At a conference in Texas, there was two preachers. God worked in my my heart. It helped. But I heard one of the preachers later on a recording talk about interracial marriages and basically compare it to homosexuality. That doesn't come from the Bible. That's right. God didn't say that. Amen. The other man who pastored a church, it recently came out that his son-in-law, who was on staff, had an inappropriate physical relationship with a teenager in the church, and he hid it and didn't tell anyone about it, and allowed him to stay on the staff for years. And I think it happened again. What am I saying? I'm saying a lot of people have had a negative experience in church, and people who didn't represent Christ in the best of ways that they should. Do we have zeal for Jesus Christ? That's a good thing. Do we have lack of love? That's a bad thing. What we need to show to people is Jesus' heart and the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that in America that churches would be renewed to careful evangelism, not rushing people through a prayer so that they can count them as a number. I pray that we would be renewed to preaching the Word of God as it is, not ripping a phrase out of context so we can launch into speaking about whatever was on our mind to talk about that day. I pray we could be renewed to study in academics and not seem to glory in ignorance. I pray we could be renewed to love and kindness and move away from harshness that has hurt people at times. I pray we could be renewed to respect for the family structure and realize that God gave the parents the position of ruling within the home and that the home was created before the church was created. I pray we could be renewed to calling out sin, yes, but actual sin, not going after other churches and institutions who believe almost the same as you do, but not quite the same, or who define it a different way, in the meanwhile covering up sexual sin and allowing people who preyed upon children to continue forward into ministry. I pray we could move away from trivial fights 
and be renewed to taking the Bible in context and realizing Romans 14 says that some issues everyone has to decide in their own mind how they will serve God the best. I pray that churches would move away from racial prejudice and treat all people as children of God. I pray that churches would move away from clinging to tradition to the point that they elevate it to doctrine or preach it more than they preach doctrine. I pray that we'd move away from skipping certain Bible passages that are a little bit difficult to interpret so that we can only preach upon our own favorite pet issues. I pray we can move away from elevating men to the level of hero worship and realize they're just servants of God the same as anyone else. We need better reasons for why we do what we do rather than, well, a preacher said so or a preacher did so. We have to be able to define it biblically from the Word of God. I think we need to move away from the reason why we do something is because in the 1960s a practice was begun and that's the old-time religion and that's the only right way to do it and be renewed in defining things biblically, standing for what the Bible stands for clearly, but giving people grace where the Bible is silent. I pray most of all that we would be renewed to two things. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I pray that the church in America could be renewed to loving God and loving people. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love. You can't separate the two. If you speak the truth but leave out love, 1 Corinthians says you're like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just making a bunch of noise. But if you say we're going to love people and we're not going to tell the truth the way the Bible does it, then what good have we done either because we have cowardly been ashamed to stand for where the Bible says we are supposed to stand. Only the God who made all these things can restore it. In our hearts this morning, may we repent of where we are wrong. May we run to Him and say, God, bring renewal to our nation, to our church, to our community, but first of all, to my heart. Let's bow our heads for a time of prayer. One of the ladies will come and play music. As I said, I apologize. We've gone over today. This is a good 10, 15 minutes later than I would like to be done with church on a weekly basis, and we have been done. But if there's anything the Lord has spoken to your heart about today, take this as a time of prayer. We can pray at the altar or in your seat. And if there's anything I can do for you, please let me know. Thank you.